0: installing uh, a new class of uh, officers to serve on the session in the diaconate, uh, and so I, I'm going to preach an abbreviated uh, sermon that I did earlier, and then we'll lead up to that very, very important time, that installation that we think is very fitting to go, uh, to be in one of our, our worship services. John chapter 1, I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 through verse 14. Hear God's word. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That ends the reading of of God's word. In 1879, when this, when this church building was uh, 20 years old, a baby was born to a family in Germany, and he was named Albert, Albert Einstein. And as a boy, he studied in Munich and in Milan and in Switzerland. And his parents were very concerned, for they thought he was a very slow learner because he did not keep pace with the other students in his school. But in reality, his slow learning ability was due to the fact that he thought much more deeply about very simple things. And it was this simplicity of thought and this deep level of concentration that allowed him to probe into what we look back at as the secrets of the universe. He probed those more deeply than anyone of his time or perhaps of all time. He received the Nobel Prize in 1921 for his work in theoretical physics. He began teaching here in America at Princeton in 1934. He became an American citizen in 1940. Now, from Einstein, we learn that there is unimaginable power and strength within even the most innocent, harmless things that we see every day. And as an expression of the potential of these forces, Einstein perfected what is certainly the best known equation in physics or mathematics. And that equation is E equals, speak to me, MC squared. Now let me explain that to you in the simplest of terms. The meaning of that equation is that the energy that is present within matter is equal to the mass of that matter multiplied by the speed of light squared. Now, we know that the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second, so simple mathematics leads us to understand that the explosive power within the nuclear components of any given mass are so great as almost to be beyond description. Now, it was discovered that uranium was and is a remarkable metal, because under certain proper circumstances, it can uranium can be caused to release its atoms with a massive explosive force. Now, without too strenuous an imagination, the idea is that there's an entity like a proton. And it's traveling in an orbit at the speed of light. And that speed of that proton is carrying tremendous energy. So if that proton would be released from that orbit and shot, you might say, directed in a straight line, then it would devastate everything in its path. Now the proper combination that produced this effect was what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now it's still the case that most people in the world, and probably most of us, do not understand the theory of relativity and how it is that such gigantic forces could be released in the nuclear bomb. How much should we attempt to understand? Here's what Einstein said about this. He said, anyone who has ever tried to present a rather abstract scientific subject in a popular manner you hear that? Anyone who's tried to take something very complicated and present it in, a, in a, uh, a, a popular manner, they know the great difficulties of such an attempt. He said, here's the dilemma. Either he succeeds in being intelligible by concealing the core of the problem and only offering the reader a superficial explanation, or else he gives an expert account of the problem but in such a fashion that an untrained reader is unable to follow the exposition and becomes discouraged from reading any further. In my words, he was saying, you either make it so simple as to present it in, in, uh, in an untruth type way, to make it simple, or you explain it the way it should be explained, but it's so complicated, most people will get too bored and won't even pay attention. So the the challenge is to take the great abstract the theory and make it concrete so that most of us can understand it now that's what's happening in John chapter 1 it starts out with the abstract in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god what does that mean with god was god he was with god in the beginning abstract what would appear theoretical Difficult, complex, but by verses 12 and following, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now it becomes concrete. So let's look at some of the key thoughts here just for a few moments that John wants us to see from God's Word. First, I want you to note the divinity of Jesus. He opens his gospel with the words, In the beginning. I hope you've read the Bible enough or heard the Bible enough that you recognize where those words come from, of course, those are the opening words of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, why, why is John doing this? It's very intentional that he chose those words. Here's what he wants to happen. He wants to take the readers back, not just as far back as Matthew takes us to Abraham who lived 2000 years before the incarnation of Christ. He's going back not even back further, but all the way back to creation and before. That's how far John wants us to understand as we think about Jesus. We have to go back to that very moment when matter was formed out of nothing, when God spoke by his word and created everything that is. That's where we have to start. When creation came into being, the word of God, that is Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form, in his pre-incarnate existence, should I say. He already was. He already was in existence. And if he was there at the beginning, then we do not associate Jesus as part of this creation. If we look around, whether it's the materials in the building or the plants or one another, everything, every one of us had a point of creation. We were created. Jesus was never created. He always existed. He is not part of this world. He is not part of this solar system. He is not part of our universe. Because at the very moment when this creation was brought into being by the word of God, when he spoke it into existence, he already was. He already existed. That's what John means. The word was with God and the word was God. Now, this word, word has gained a lot of attention through the years. It's a very important term. It meant one thing to the Greek mind. It meant something else to the Hebrew mind. The actual word is logos. To the Greeks, it had very much a philosophical meaning. It meant the organizing principle of the entire universe. But to the Hebrews, it could convey a person's thoughts or reason or speech. And so in both cultures to whom John was writing, It conveys the idea of revealing the mind of God. So through Christ, through Jesus, God reveals himself, his word. Let's look at the humanity, the humanity of Jesus. I'm going to drop down to verse 14 where it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Do you know what the word incarnation means when we, talk, uh, when we read that in Christmas carols or hear it especially around the birth narratives of Jesus' incarnate, incarnation, Webster says it means to give bodily form or substance to. Our larger catechism asks the question, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? And the answer, it says, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body, and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. In the incarnation, deity funneled itself into humanity. First time I ever saw a funnel was when I was a little boy, and my father was putting oil in a lawnmower. Back then, the oil, I don't know who thought this up, what engineer, but the oil you had to put in a lawnmower, there was a little place at the bottom of the mower, of the mower engine, and you unscrewed this little hole, and somehow or another you were take this big can of oil, and you were supposed to make it go in that hole that you could not reach with the can. So that's the first time my dad said, "Here, here's a funnel, and he put it in there. I was intrigued by this funnel. You take something big, this quantity of oil, and it would funnel down into this little bitty three-quarter of an inch hole at the bottom of the motor. Well, in the incarnation, deity funneled itself into humanity. Now, in every age, including our own, there are plenty of people who will will deny that Jesus was God. I don't think that's the main denial today. Today, the main attacks on Christianity, and I assume you've read these and many of the the modern atheists that that you find in the, the bookstores now, is that the the New Testament is not verifiable, that we don't even know if Jesus really lived because you can't find find much corroborating evidence in the literature of the first century or even the second century, they will say. And uh, I spent an enormous, well, more time than I should have this past week reading some of those arguments and the simple answers to some of those arguments. Uh, But that's another subject. So there are people that will deny the deity of Christ, they, they will deny also that he was truly human, that he was not from eternity past. But the Bible says that he was God and man. He was deity, he was humanity. And we find that all through the scriptures. For example, in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Uh, we have that verse in chapter 9 of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So it mentions that he's Mighty God, but it says he will be born, the deity in the humanity. When the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee, they were going from Capernaum to a place called the Land of the Gadarenes. And Jesus is exhausted from the activities of the previous day, so he goes down in the boat and he goes to sleep. Now that ought to tell you something, how tired he was. If you've ever tried, one, uh, to to, to sleep in a boat, it, it would seem next to impossible, especially during a storm. These seasoned fishermen wake him up, saying, Don't you care? We're going to perish. There's a great storm. The wind is great. What does he do? He steals the storm. Storm. So, what could be more human than the complete exhaustion to uh, put a person to sleep in the midst of a storm? But what's more divine than by his very word stilling the winds and the waters? In fact, the disciples exclaimed there at the end of Matthew chapter 8, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? He was human with human emotions. All through his ministry, we we note details of compassion and pity. In Mark 8, Mark chapter 8, it says, During those days another large crowd gathered. They had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to them and said, I have compassion for these people. In Matthew 9, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. The wording there is he was moved. We associate compassion as such a human trait. When there's a violent criminal that maybe has been merciless toward people and what we'd call, call just a, a, a cold-blooded murderer, often even the press will say this person is like inhuman. Their actions were, were inhuman, what they did, because of the lack of compassion. Christ had compassion and pity. He experienced grief and indignation. In John 12, he weeps at the, the tomb of, of, of Lazarus, his friend, In Matthew 23, we see his passion of anger and zeal when he calls the religious leaders hypocrites and serpents. And so he is like us in that he was tempted and that he suffered. When you are tempted, you pray for deliverance from a one who has experienced all of that. I was leaving a church service once years ago, and there was a man who was an alcoholic, and he was with me, and... The pastor apparently, had, I don't even remember, had mentioned something in the sermon about drunkenness or something. Anyway, this man very, very was very upset, very angry. And he said to me, he said, what, what right does that preacher have to stand up there and uh, talk about that? He said, he doesn't know what it's like to wake up first thing in the morning and have your hands shake and need a drink of alcohol. Well... I can be empathetic. You want someone that can relate to you, but at the same time, if all of us who are pastors or teachers have to experience everything in life before we could speak to it, (laughs) life is too short, and we would probably be in no condition to speak to it if we did experience all of that. But on a positive note, we want to know that if someone tells us to do something or gives us advice, that they perhaps have some experience in that level. If you're facing a, a very dangerous surgery and uh, maybe a painful surgery it it probably does very little good for someone that you know who's never had a health problem in their life to say oh I wouldn't worry about it everything will be fine as opposed to someone who's been down the same path who's been through the same surgery who comes and says I'd like to talk to you about it I want to tell you what to expect and I think everything's going to be okay now that's when you'll listen you'll know that person understands what they understand what you're feeling Well, Jesus, by the incarnation, he came to know all of life. Trials, joys, sufferings, losses, gains, temptations, griefs, he entered into them. And that's why Peter speaks of the value of Christ being a man, having a human body, when he says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Hebrews says because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Y'all still with me? Y'all are, listen, the, the 9 o'clock crowd, they were barely waking up. And, and I, was, I was getting some, it was asking too much to think, uh, I think, at that time. All right, let's drop down to verse 14 when it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Your translation may said tabernacled among us. Jesus came and he tabernacled, literally pitched his tent among us. If you went to Sunday school, if you've been to Sunday school, you've read the Bible, hopefully you know about the tabernacle. That was the place where God instructed his people, the Jews in the wilderness, this tent, uh, he instructed them to construct this tent where he would meet with them. Now why is it significant that it uses this word here to talk about the incarnation of Christ, that he tabernacled among us? One of the names of the tabernacle was the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. Now, my grandmama used to use this term. Oh, you've got your Sunday go-to-meeting clothes on. We don't talk like that today or, you know. Now, and sometimes churches were called, I'm going to the church meeting, meaning like a worship service. That's not what tent of meeting meant when it says tabernacle. Here's the difference. When we use the term church meeting, we're talking about gathering with some other people. Maybe for worship service or a business meeting. We're talking about that kind of meeting. In the tabernacle, that was the one place where sinful men and women came to meet not with one another, but with a holy God. It was the tent, it was the Sunday go to meeting with God clothes you might say so that was the place where they met so when it says Jesus tabernacled among us he took flesh and blood he came into this world as a human being he lived in a physical body he shared our pains and frustrations and so now we through him can meet with God that's how we can commune with him That's how he tabernacled among us. So when Hebrews says we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, you cannot pray about a temptation or sin or worry or suffering. You pray to one who understands. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be exhausted. He knows what it is to be betrayed by close friends. He knows what it is to have your words misconstrued and used against you. He knows what it is to be falsely accused by others. He knows what it is to suffer the loss of loved ones. He knows what it is to live in a culture that was oppressed by the Roman government. He knows what it is to have a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. He knows what it is to have Nails driven through his hands and feet. He knows what it is to die. There is nothing that we face in our temptations and our sufferings that we cannot take to him in prayer and find empathy and understanding. Now, what's the meaning of all of this? The meaning is that the incarnation that you matter to God. You matter to God. I saw a comedian years ago talk about if you're driving in the country in a car and you're driving along country road and you look over and there's a cow standing behind a fence right by the road. He said, all right, be honest. How many times have you slowed the car down, rolled the window down, and mooed at the cow? (laughs) Moo. He said, do you really think that cow is looking, saying, (laughs) wow, where'd uh, where'd that cow get that car? He's driving it, you know. If God had wanted to communicate with cows, he would have become a cow. If God had wanted to communicate with ants, he would have become an ant. If he had wanted to communicate with horses, he would have become a horse. But he wanted to communicate with humans, so he became a human. You matter to God. We talk a lot about why Christ came. The reason is that you and I have a problem called sin. We've all disobeyed God's law in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. And God says the punishment for sin is death. So we have a death sentence on our heads by the sheer fact that we're sinners. There's nothing we can do to remove that on our own power. We can't be good enough. We can't obey enough. We can't be religious enough. Because we can't do away with God's penalty, which says I'm, I must punish sin. So we need to substitute someone who will take the punishment in our place Jesus becomes a man. He lives a perfect life. He never sins. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. Then he allowed himself to be arrested and crucified on a cross. Now, on that cross, God took my sin. Here was Chip that he made and created. God says, I want to have life with you. You matter to me. But there's this problem, and that problem is sin. I must punish sin. And So when Christ was on the cross, the sinless one God transferred my sin. He put my sin on Jesus, and he punished him in my place. And so Jesus took the full punishment for my sin as my substitute, and then he died. Three days later, he came back from the dead. He was victorious over death, something you and I cannot do on our own. He appeared to more than 500 people over a period of 40 days, testifying that he was risen from the grave. And the last command he gave to his disciples was that they were to go into all the world and make disciples, in other words, telling people what he had done and tell them how they can receive the gift of eternal life. So we receive what Christ has done through faith, that we trust. We trust that, yes, God created me, but I trust that I have, am a sinner. I trust that Jesus was the Son of God. I have faith that when he died, he died for me and that he rose from the grave. And now he gives me forgiveness of sins. He's made me a new creature in him. So what's very important to know is that before he became a man, Jesus did not exist in bodily form. Do you realize that? Until, until conception, the miraculous conception in his mother Mary, he did not exist in bodily form. Now, let me ask you a question. This is really not part of the sermon, but just as a side note. This was a question that I was asked along with three other men when I was ordained to be a Presbyterian minister. Does Christ still exist in bodily form right now? Don't answer out loud. The answer is yes. Right now, Jesus exists in bodily form. When he became incarnate, he has remained incarnate. Now it's a resurrected body. It's the body that Stephen saw when, as he was being stoned to death in Acts, the Book of Acts, he looked and said, "I see, I see him standing at the right hand of the throne of God." Jesus today exists in bodily form. You matter to God. Now, let me. I'm going to close with this. And those of you that have read some of the arguments about we don't know if Jesus existed because we can't find 1st and 2nd century authors that corroborate the existence of Jesus in their writings. There are four sources, Josephus, Pliny the Younger, a couple of others, and they try to discredit those. And uh, I was just thinking this week as I was reading some of their writings and the dogmatism. And how, man, how certain they are of all this. I said, what would cause those early disciples to die martyrs' deaths? I mean, people don't die for a lie. Uh, Rarely will we die for the truth, but certainly not for lies, not something we know is a hoax. What would cause all of the disciples, except John, who wrote this, to die a martyr's death? What caused it was they knew the reality, reality of this coming, of this incarnation, of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It was reality to them. I mentioned before to you about David Modge. David is a playwright, was a playwright. In November of 1963, he was in New York watching the performance of one of his own plays. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? A play he had written, he was watching it. There came a scene in the play where the actor is to walk over to a radio turn on the radio, and tune it into a station. Now, though that scene was written in the play, whatever the radio was going to be playing would come out. They had no control over that. So sure enough, at the right time of the play, the actor went over, turned on the radio, tuned in a station to hear these words, Today in Dallas, Texas, President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed. He turned the radio off, but it was too late. Reality had broken in. Everyone heard it and they knew things for them would change dramatically. Now that's what happened. That's what happened with the disciples like John, like, like Peter and, and, and Matthew and, and, and the others. Reality broke in to such an extent that they died for the truth of it. Chap verse 12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. It's a free gift. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to pay for it. It is a free gift. He gave the right to become children of God. Let's pray together. Well, as we look at these words that are very abstract in one fashion, but they are very concrete in another. We pray that our trust would be in Christ, that if any of us here this very moment uh, is not in a right relationship with you has not come to put their faith in Jesus that even now, even as we've read these words that as many as received him that they might do so at this moment by confessing to you by by admitting to you in their hearts that, that they desire to accept your gift of forgiveness and to inherit your gift of eternal life and that you would make them the person that you want them to be thank you for your power not only to redeem us and forgive us but also to change us and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I told you earlier, uh...